should be noted that sometimes I feel bad for you guys when I make you read this stuff. It's not doesn't just bring pure joy to my heart, but I think for our church, and, and this is one of the things as I visit churches, is I love to hear the scripture read aloud before the sermon. There's there's lots of churches where the pastor just sort of gets up and sort of like jumps into Ephesians or number, never numbers 19, I can tell you that much. Um, and then just sort of riffs the scripture in throughout the sermon. And, and that's nice. I think it appeals to some people, but I think there's something about hearing it read out loud in this longer format. So today's text, while no weird names, except for Eleazar, um, plenty of defilement and unclean and, and death in it hands. Um, this is our seventh uh, sermon in the number series as we go through numbers this summer. And uh, this is the red heifer. This is one of the ones when David helped me divide this up. He's not here today, so I can really throw him under the bus for this one. David was like, oh, you got to do the red heifer. And I was like, I've read numbers, right? But I don't remember exactly what the red heifer is, David. Um, and based on where it is in the story, there's a good reason where you don't. It's about where your eyes begin to glaze over as you're reading through this portion of numbers before the bronze snake and the people get into the land and stuff. And so that's sort of where we, we find ourselves today. It's in this weird passage in, in um, Numbers 19. I should say that there, there's a joke among pastors where it's like sometimes we don't have it and we're like, I'm going to sing a couple more songs. I'm going to get there and sing a couple more songs. And uh, so in the course of a week, this is this is sort of how I break out the, the text for a sermon. And, and so um, I, this is a, a program I use. In the middle are all notes from the books I read. That's the handwritten portion. And then there's stuff I find online and copy and paste. And there's various other things. And then a couple images I take from books. And I do this every week. And I sort of build a page like this. And then I try to condense it into the sermon. This is the one for this Sunday, and as much notes as are up there, I feel like I have nothing. Like, I've got a few points, but it, this one killed me. Um, you just keep reading and reading, and everybody's just repeating the same thing, and no meaning comes out of it to me. So if you have a great red heifer sermon that you know of, or um, one that you'd like to give, please let me know, because this one, uh, there's some good stuff here, and we'll get to that, but this one was a challenge for me. As we sort of, as I sort of went and went and went and read and read, and this is, you know, about an average amount. I wouldn't say this is little. I kept writing stuff down, but when I went back over it, I'm like, that doesn't help. Um, uh, doesn't help. Doesn't help. And so I thought we'd do a quick overview. This is the outline of numbers we used, but you'll notice I added a red arrow that says you are here. Um, and so we did uh, the first sermon talking about lifting the heads that the people were counting before God. And they have this sort of moment of where things are going well, things are, are sort of moving as they should, and then the second they begin to travel in chapter 10, things begin to fall apart again. And then they spend about 13 through 19 after the spies come back in the wilderness of Paran. And when we get to, to 22, it's been about 38 years. Now, I don't know what you think about the number series so far, but it doesn't feel like 38 years when you're reading the book. Like, it sort of goes very fast. Um, you know, you had with the 1 through 10 is about two months. Uh, 10 through 22 is about 38 years. That's a lot of time covered very quickly. And lots of it, at least probably half of it, is laws uh, or addendums to the law like Sylvia read. So it's not even narrative. It's, there's not a lot that's happening. And when the things that do happen are all these murmurings and discontent within the camp. 
And so one of the things that we've been journeying for a number of years there is just looking at the book as a whole, but also looking at as it's sort of soul work for us, is that we have these periods of stability. We have these periods of orientation. We have these periods that are going, things are being formed well. And then we have periods where we move, where we go out. And these normally cause trials. Now, for the Israelites, it's about three days before that causes a problem. And depending on what I'm doing in my life, three days could either be very long um, or very short, but, but more often very long before I cause a problem. Um, and so the Israelites go out, and they have this period of sort of testing and trial, and, and they sort of become this new generation through this. This is another graph we sort of use to look at the timeline, is that the top timeline, you have these people who come out of slavery, that their minds are still bound back towards slavery, that they're still captive to the patterns of what it means to be a slave. They look back to that time and that land as they're out in the wilderness with almost fondness. Worth, worth bearing the reminder that they were slaves, that their firstborn, when Moses shows up on the scene, are gathered up and tossed into the Nile. Um, this is not a good time for them. And yet as they meet the struggles of the wilderness, as they meet this time out there, they begin to forget about that. We talked about both in our own lives and in, in sort of this process of, of holiness as we move towards being this second generation, this these people God has called into the promise, the people whom God has set a hope for, who has called into the world, that we move to that. We, we often look back at what has been our slave owners, our slave uh, masters, as, as better than they were. Um, and I don't think it really matters what you're leaving behind. There's some comfort from that. There's some sort of neurotic thing that when you begin to like lose that thing, particularly if it's a long-formed pattern in your life, you begin to go, you know, it wasn't so bad when I was back there. The, the example I used, um, one of the examples I used was, was a class for one of alcoholism is that you begin to think it wasn't so, sure I lost my mornings and things were difficult and maybe I ruined some relationships, but I had friends, I had a place to go, I was able to, to sort of uh, let go and relax and stuff like that. And, and now I've lost that. Uh, you forget about the bad things and you remember the good things. And so it's this process of moving forward into the world. It's this process of becoming more. And so that's sort of where we've been covering in numbers so far. It brings us to numbers 19. Now this is, is one of my favorite. I look for images of the red heifer in an attempt to, to make this. It's, I don't know who subtitled this, but when you Google red heifer Bible, this is like the third hit in images. We're going to select a proper candidate from the herd which means this is bad news if this is the one that is selected for that cow. It's like, oh, that's cute. You know, he seems to be taking care of him. So slaughter him and burn him to pieces. Um, I just found it a comical. And there's this way, in, in when we think about these things, is that, that God asked them to choose one without blemish and without um, stain, and to have them sort of be unbroken in a way. This is both with the lamb and with the red heifer. And this ties into Jesus, but it's a lot of care for something you're going to just set on fire. There's a lot that goes into sort of this movement. There's a lot that goes into sort of this sacrifice and this time. Now, it should be worth noting that if you do Google red heifer, you're going to end up in an end times prophecy world that is almost near impossible to leave. Um, there, like every hit, every third, fourth, or you have, there's only like four normal hits on a page of 10 if you're lucky as you keep going. Because again, I was desperate this week trying to find something to say. So, and when I turn to Google, I like my books, 
I like doing word study. I like reading things. When you turn, when I turn to Google, times are rough. So um, when I turned to Google, I was like, oh, but surely there'll be something, even if I don't agree with it, I can amend it. And it was like nothing. Uh, because all of this end time prophecy, there's, and I'm not sure where it comes from, but there's this idea that until Israel has a red heifer again and sacrifices it, that Jesus won't return. Um, is anybody familiar with this? John? A little bit. Temple actually rebuilt, and then. Apparently, it's a big thing on the internet. Yeah. And then there actually red heifer. Yeah. And there's a guy who's from Texas, of course. Um, sorry, Lori. Um, who's purposely like trying to breed red heifers in Israel, trying to find a perfect one to bring about the end times. Um, the things you find online. But it was weird because it wasn't just one thing. It was a lot of things with the red heifer. Um, lots of things. And it's um, one of the things that uh, it struck me as I was preparing this is we say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I don't, I've never heard anybody say, behold, the cow, the heifer of God who rids the world of the stain of death. But appropriately, as if we read Jesus into the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and I think that there's a proper place to do this, and obviously with the Hebrews passage that Park read for us during the, um, during the worship set, this is part of this. There's, there's part of the Bible, the New Testament, is always reading Jesus back into these past sacrifices. Um, and so, behold, the red heifer of God who takes away the stain of death in the world. Now, one of the things this, this pushed me back into this week was thinking through Leviticus. Is, is in Leviticus, we talk about how sin or um, uncleanliness and um, there's pure and holy, and there's uncleanly and um, uh, defiled. defiled, yeah. So not everything that is unclean is defiled. Not everything that's pure is holy. Those, so you have you exist in a world in Leviticus that is sort of has unclean and clean. You can divide almost everything into unclean and clean. But what is laid on top of that through the laws in Leviticus is what is holy and defiled. And if you touch a defiled thing, you become unclean yourself. You touch an unclean thing, you don't always necessarily become defiled. And what happens is there's this there's this holy segment too. And what we find in the book of Numbers and through the book of Leviticus is the holiness is coming more and more to reside in the camp. It's coming closer and closer to the camp. And as that goes up, so does this, this notion of what does it mean to be unclean or defiled, to find yourself on the outside. And one of the things that we talked about is in this, this sort of pre-modern imagination is that there's um, the way that this functions as if it were pollution. The sin and the uncleanliness of the world is almost like a pollution. And what happens is, is that sacrifices create this clean spot for something else to happen. For people to come in communion with God. For people to move into that spot. And it's similar to this way with Jesus. Is that, is that his blood and his life creates this clean spot for us to come contact with God. And so as we think about what happened so far in the book of Numbers, in the last rebellion, the one we preached about last Sunday, the rebellion of Korah, is that there's 15,000 dead people. There's 15,000 dead people sort of strewn without the camp because of the rebellion and the plague that followed. So what does it mean to be a person who's still alive 
covered in all the darkness that is death. In Leviticus and, and in Numbers, death is this ultimate defiling thing. It's the thing that most terrorism sorts us apart from God. And even there's this way in which lots of the food laws and the, and the, um, the other laws are about these things that are unnatural that seem to be decaying towards death. One of the reasons why pregnancy is so ramped up in some of these laws is because there was a high likelihood of, of sort of death in that. There was this way in which in, in the body... Well, I'll say that. Um, uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, for an ancient mind, the body is sort of like at the edge of something. That something is being born and something is wasting away in the pregnancy. And so there's this ways, the ways in which these things, death becomes sort of the ultimate signifier of what this pollution is. Death is this way in which things are torn apart. And so at this moment, you find yourself one of the, of the remaining alive. And, and the, when the Israelites are counted, there's 700,000 there, right? And God says only um, Joseph or Joshua and Caleb will go into the land. And at the end, there's 700,000 of them, which largely means that in the course of this journey, they're going to bury 700,000 people if you take those numbers. Death is going to be something that reigns these 38 years. Death is going to be a preoccupation often. And it's this way in which God sort of meets people where they're at. God sort of comes close to them. God sort of moves into a space to allow for them to survive in this world of death. When we went through Leviticus, it was one of these things that we talked about the blood. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and if I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar, it is the blood that makes an atonement for one's life. So what happens is this blood is burned out, the ashes are combined together. And if you read the scene um, with a, an imagination towards the color, it's a red heifer, it's uh, hyssop, it's cedar wood that can be, tends to have a reddish tint. There's scarlet that they're bound up with. It's red, 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 over and over and over. And it's almost as if they're making this purification water with this mixture of blood and this life of this red heifer so that they can be cleansed again, so that they can be brought back out into the world. And so God allows the space for the person to sort of come like this and return to the camp, return back to the people be back to where God is near. And it's one of those things that, that is worth remembering is that God is a God of life. And the life there is so abundant that death sort of disintegrates in its face. That God is undoing death as you get closer and closer. And those things are that which defile, that are burned off. It's why it's a dangerous thing to approach God as unclean. And so this scene has this, is laden with all these things, but as I was reading and reading this week, there's this, as I begin to tap about the red heifer, which I've been putting off, is in the Talmud, which is a Jewish book on the interpretation. In Ecclesiastes, they say, Solomon knew everything. Solomon understood almost everything, except for one thing. He never was able to understand the red heifer. That's great. So reassuring. Um, the guy whom Jews said he knew everything struggled to get at what I'm trying to express today. Um, that's a, it's an interesting thing, because what the most odd part about the red heifer, and this is worth considering as a paradox for yourself, because I had a hard time making sense of it, 
is it's one of the only rituals in which the person who sprinkles you with the water is also made unclean. There's this paradox to it, is that when the water is made and you come in contact with death, and I'm your friend or someone, and lay people seem to be able to do this in this passage, you're sprinkled with the water of purification. Now I have to take a bath. It's not the same uncleanliness, but I have to take a bath and wait in the evening before I can return to the king. Totally unforeseen in the law, totally unforeseen in all the other sacrifices, is that it has this way of making clean and unclean at the same time. There's a lot I thought about with this. Not much that, that I've quite, I mean, when you do this uh, 49 times a year, you're on a weekly schedule. And so as I ponder this, I'll probably have more to say, but just me pondering it. The only thing I could really get to is that there's something about death which makes you unclean in a way that it's almost, you can, that as you get purified, it still leaves a mark. It still makes something there, even on the other person, that death sort of has that power and that reign. And I think it's interesting for us as we consider Christ. Christ is the one whom, whom as Park read for us, is that high priest of the good things that are, or Brian read it today, uh, now ready when he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of creation. He did not enter by the mean of blood of goats and calves, that's the cow, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus by obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Author of Hebrews sees that Christ becomes for us one who sanctifies us from this death. And so as we as the ones in that beginning slide, surrounded by darkness and death, surrounded by light, it becomes how do we move and be in this world? You sacrifice a red heifer every year. You make waters of purification all the time. This is part of what, what is in the sacramental, the, the sacrificial imagination of the author of Hebrews is that no, because of Christ, that system, has, while it has revealed something, has come to an end. And Christ is the perfect form of all of these sacrifices. He's the one who rids the world of this. And so an attempt to, to capture that, uh, Christ comes in a different way. He comes as one who is this light, this one who is from God. And his holiness, his sanctification, sort of leaks out of him. And so you'll find in the Gospels, Christ interacts with unclean things very often. But they are not unclean to him. He tends to purify through them. He brings holiness and healing to them. Christ becomes so radiating because of who he is with God, because he is as God, is that his life leads out in a way that changes things. It can go into the places of the unclean and make them whole again. That Christ's life is sort of, in a way, able to cross these boundaries in a way that brings life. And it's through his blood, it is said, and this is where it's helpful to go back to that Leviticus passage, is that in the blood is the life. You talk about blood, you talk about life. In his blood and in his life, 
is revealed as one who does this. And so this is why this uh, passage from Hebrews began with how much more, how much more Christ doing this is for us. Or as, as contemporary Christians, we have this habit of thinking of sin as the ultimate sort of category that opposes God. But, but in the biblical imagination, it almost seems like death is in that place. Paul declares that death is the final enemy that God is trying to extinguish. That death is what's thrown into Hades, the book of Revelation. And more so this, the question of where, O oh death, is thy sting, having known what Christ has done for us. That it's almost like this, this heavy thing that weighs upon the world that is treacherous to all of us is somehow defanged in what Christ does in going to death and being raised to new life. He changes reality. And so this is the, to where I was able to get with the red heifer. On the back of the bulletin is a long quote from, from Charles Spurgeon. Perhaps the only sermon I was able to find on the red heifer online in my, in my short search. But he talks about how Christ is the key to these things. That if we look for Christ in these things, we will be less perplexed. Perplexed. Uh, toward the end, he says, Having believed in Christ Jesus, having received him as the Father sent one, being reconciled unto God by his death, we look back to the ceremonies of the old law as patterns of the heavenly things. You see in the story of the red heaven, is a pattern of heavenly things. To endeavor to discover some new light in which the Savior's duties may be set, and to behold him for some different point of view, so that we may love him better, Trust him the more. Was, um, uh, I was at a meeting with, with a bunch of clergy. This is the end of the sermon, and we were talking about. Oh, I don't know why. We were talking about the, uh, putting together a new hymnal, and somebody was asked. Somebody said, "I hope they fix all the bad theology in the hymnal." And I was like, "Well, I've got my own hobby horse of what bad theology is in a hymnal." Um, but what I asked the group, I said, what do you think is, is, what's the bad theology you guys want to get off? Because they all seem to like agree that there's some bad theology in the hymnal. And I said, what is it? And they said, all the blood stuff. All the blood stuff should go. Um, and it's interesting because I've, first off, almost all my friends theologically, almost all my friends theologically are more progressive than I am or more liberal than I am. Um, and I was like, it's and I happened to be preaching through Leviticus that summer when that meeting happened, and I was like, I don't know, it seems like we have to also read, write out a whole bunch of the Bible to get rid of all the blood language, um, to which they didn't seem to have the same problem with that I would. Um, but I was thinking about this notion of blood here, and the blood, the, the role it plays in Leviticus, and how we come to trust in the blood. What is it that the blood does for us? It, it becomes something that I think is, is harder to think about in the world, but is worth still pondering. And so I came back to the song, which I actually thought was, was a, a, a hymn, but I had to look up the story of it. In 1971, uh, Gavin Byers, Carla, have you heard of Gavin Byers? He's like an avant-garde composer, right? Who's the other one that's famous? Nick Cage? Nick, Nick Cage is the famous one. Um, recorded a homeless guy on John Cage, John Cage, um, uh, recorded a homeless guy singing in the street uh, as part of a project 
And then he got all the tapes and he recorded this homeless man singing this song. Um, and it says that Jesus' blood never failed me. Jesus' blood never failed me. Um, and, and he played it for 25 minutes in the first recording he did of it with an orchestra sort of building over it. And then in the interviews I read with him, again, I was desperate this week. Um, in the interviews I read with him, he seemed to think that there was something beautiful about it, but not being a believer and not being a Christian and not even really being culturally Christian. I think he just thought that this man's confidence in this was nice. But it's a moving song that this homeless guy sort of composes on the street himself of this sort of that Jesus' blood never failed me. That Jesus' blood never failed me. Now, if you're sophisticated, like my clergy friends were, you can say, ah, oh, there's too many problems with that. Maybe you shouldn't sing that. Maybe you shouldn't sing that. But there's something, there's some hope you can find when you're on the bottom sometimes. Or when you're lost in the wilderness, as the Hebrew or when you don't know where else to go, that might have you calling out that Jesus' blood never failed me. So to end the sermon, we're going to listen to all 25 minutes. Uh, uh, Christian band, Jars of Clay, covered it in a shorter thing. Let us listen to it for a moment. It takes some time to think about what does it mean that this blood, that Jesus comes to us, not just as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but as the, the heifer, the called out one of God, removes the stain of death and destruction from the world. And I think it's worth considering, and I try not to talk too much about contemporary events, but, but in light of what happened um, yesterday in El Paso, um, death still stinks up this place. Death still makes the world a difficult place. Death seems to reign so what is it for us, those touched by this blood, touched by this one, to be able to go as clean ones to those places, to go into the areas of destruction and disorder and chaos as ones who belong to Christ in such a way that what radiates out from us is not that we will get unclean, but that we can bring cleanliness there, can bring holiness there, that we can be agents of God's holy love. So we'll close with that Jesus' blood never failed me. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one
this morning we come to you as ones perplexed by the scripture at times. So we ask that this story, that this way may light the way for us to see through a world of death. To be able to be cleansed by it. To be touched by your blood. May we be people who know that that never fails us. brings us and redeems us into new worlds. It takes us away from the works of death. It brings us into the works of life. So that we can be with you for the world. Amen.